Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 5, 1 to 32. It's Genesis 5, 1 to 32. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 4. And please stand with me for the reading of the word. Genesis 5, 1 to 32, page 4, if you're using the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. So I'm really thankful for Tyler reading the scripture reading this morning, so I didn't have to pronounce all those names. Um, so that's good. So we are doing a series through the book of Genesis, and this week, that's why we're doing chapter 5, um, and expositional preaching, going through a book you know, portion by portion is really helpful because would you pick Genesis 5? Um, I probably wouldn't either. But 
man, there is some really, really important stuff in there for us. So, as we head in, uh, I listened to, I think it was this past week, I listened sometimes to a podcast called The Art of Manliness. Okay, you can giggle if you want. Um, I need some help with this, so I'm... Uh, just so you know what, it, what this is all about, the art of manliness is dedicated to uncovering the lost art of being an honorable, well-rounded man. It's not a Christian podcast, but the guy who you know, does it has certainly got kind of a Judeo-Christian worldview to some degree. And it's about encouraging our readers to be better husbands, fathers, brothers, citizens, a new generation of great men. So it's worth listening to here and there while you're on your run or driving or whatever. Okay, so there was a recent episode where the host interviewed a guy named David Giffels, author of the book Furnishing Eternity, A Father, a Son, a Coffin, and a Measure of Life. So this guy in his 40s had this idea. His dad in his 80s was a master woodworker, and so he had this idea to make his own coffin with his dad. So it took them a few years, and as you can imagine, it's a meaningful process. He wrote a book about it. What do you do? So this guy's in his 40s, maybe 50 by the time he finished the thing. What do you do then with your coffin until you need it? Um, so they turned it into a piece of furniture. So it was standing on end one day in the father's workshop, and the son looked at it and said, wow, Dad, that would make a really good bookcase. So he made some removable shelves so he could use it as a bookcase temporarily. Um, then he had to figure out where to put it in his house, and really there was only one option. On their second level, it's kind of a wide hallway, and so they put it up there in the wide open hallway on the second floor, but the only thing was that when he and his wife woke up every morning, what was the first thing that they saw? It was the coffin. But they left it there because they figured it's actually not a bad thing that our first thought each morning should be, I will die someday. So that's what Genesis 5 is going to help us do as well. Samuel Johnson once famously said, depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be executed in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. He also said in a letter to Sir Joshua Reynolds that we must all die. We always knew. I wish I had remembered it sooner. So we would do well, all of us, to pray the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90, even now, that the Lord would teach us, Lord, please teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom because we tend sometimes to resist this lesson, the learning of this wisdom. We don't want to think about death. We don't want to consider that quickly diminishing number of days ahead of us and that quickly, quickly, quickly growing um, number of days behind us. 
So oftentimes it actually takes some outside help to get us thinking. So the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, I've quoted this many times in funerals, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So I would much rather go to a wedding than a funeral. But from the perspective of gaining wisdom, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Why? Because death is the end of everyone. And the living don't often, you and I don't often lay it to heart, but we need to. So death is, in fact, our teacher this morning. Death is preaching to us. So we shouldn't stick our fingers in our ears when death is preaching. So whether it's Genesis 5 or a funeral, it's, it's God holding up a, a big sign to say, you're going to die. It's a dress rehearsal. Are you ready? So let's sit at death's feet this morning and learn. Let's lay these lessons to heart and gain heart of wisdom. So... Genesis 5, genealogy, we might be typically tempted to just blow by it, right? Genealogies. But there's some really important truth here for us. So you may have noticed that there were three digressions from the pattern in this chapter, right? Right off the bat with Adam and Seth, that's different from the rest. And then Enoch, that one's different. And then Noah, that one's different. So the majority of the significance in the chapter is found in those three places. So we're going to kind of focus there as we walk through it. Um, also, I'll mention this. We're not going to waste precious time on this in detail. I'll just say it briefly. I think these are real ages. Okay, the Bible gives every indication that these are real ages. So it makes sense that human beings were made to live forever. Death came in as a result of the fall. So it makes sense that they initially lived much longer than we do now, okay? But on the other hand, does this genealogy mean that there were 1,656 years from Adam to the flood? Maybe. I have no idea. But I actually kind of doubt it, okay? Because ancient genealogies were often shaped for an author's purpose, okay? So there are 10 names here. You know, you can do the math. That's not the point, okay? Ten was a significant number in the ancient Near East. Um, it's a number of fullness. It was not uncommon to skip names, to make a more memorable pattern, or to provide focus and emphasis on certain generations, okay? So, for instance, in Matthew 1, verse 8, the genealogy of Jesus, Joram begets his great-great-grandson, if you take it literally, Okay, but there was a pattern that Matthew is trying to do with these 14s and all of that. So he's leaving out generations. People would have known that. Okay, he's not trying to fake you out. Okay, he's bringing focus. So again, the total period is undetermined, I think. But again, we're not going to get hung up on that. But I figured it would be worth mentioning something. All right. So first, the way that the genealogy begins is significant. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful to follow along, and the slides will be up here, too, for each point. So the way the genealogy begins is significant with blessing. 
um, reminding us of the good, good, very good beginning back in chapter, chapters 1 and 2. So look at verse 1 again. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them and named them man, mankind, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, just like God did. So Adam is Seth's father, God was Adam's father. So it's kind of hinting at the fatherhood of God. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So a few things to notice here. Again, we're brought back to, we're reminded of the, of the good beginning before the fall, before sin, and what was it like before the fall, before sin, before the curse? It was all blessing. Okay, he blessed them. And that's what God the Father gave. That was the original design. And we are going to see the inheritance here in chapter 5 of the serpent and the inheritance of sin in this chapter, the inheritance of death, the wages of our forefathers' sin that we all likewise have earned. So, but before the curse... Moses, as he's writing this, reminds us of the blessing. So we're going to see the curse up close and personal, but there was blessing first. So we can't lose sight of that blessing, the memory of it, the sound of it, in the midst of the chaos and the fallout from the fall in the rest of this chapter. So it's interesting also that it's Seth that is noted in the family tree. So sadly, Abel's not here because he's dead. We considered that last week. He will not be the one to carry on the line of the woman. And Cain is not here because he actually proved himself to be offspring of the serpent. Remember, there's going to be this enmity, two lines. The offspring of the woman is going to be at war with the offspring of the serpent. And that war ended with Abel's blood on the ground in the last chapter. But God gave another son, Seth, and so the line of the woman gets continued. So God promised that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so even the genealogies of the Bible are shaped by that big story, big purpose, hope, and longing. Okay, so the genealogy is followed, following through the line of Seth, and it's pressing to Noah. So this is like a bridge to chapters 6 to 9, which is all about Noah and the flood. Okay? He's the lead character in the next few chapters, a deliverer of sorts. And so the one through whom the line of the woman and the hope of mankind will be preserved. So the sad fall from blessing to curse is signaled at the beginning of the chapter. The effects of the fall spread so wide, so deep, that the curse in chapter 3 is going to lead to worldwide condemnation in chapters 6 and following. So Noah, in a sense, after the fall, is going to be like a second Adam or a new Adam by which humanity will be remade. Okay, this is one story, just trying to locate us in that story. That link from Adam to Noah is being established here in chapter 5. So 
Blessing is where it starts, but oh, the effects of the curse. There's this collision of blessing and curse, and then we hear a refrain. Death. You heard it when Tyler read. The refrain, and he died eight times. It's supposed to echo in our minds. It's supposed to sober us and even haunt us. So, so, far, in the, so far in the story, God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the serpent lied through his forked tongue, you will not surely die. And he died. And he died. So let God be true. And let it be known that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. You will surely die. And he died. 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 Is it bothering you yet? That's kind of the point. The refrain is proof, it's testimony of whom you should trust. It's a jarring refrain. Death is reigning now. It's so wrong. And it's because we bought the lies of the liar. Satan denied the penalty of death. He was lying to us. And so we often live in the denial of death, and we're lying to ourselves. We're kidding ourselves if we do that. We're trying to pull the wool over our own eyes if we live that way. Ignoring our mortality is not good for us. But isn't it funny? In our culture, death now is more taboo than sex. So we need, we need Genesis 5. We need to stare it in the face for a while and be sobered. So a guy named Matthew McCullough wrote a book recently called Remember Death. He writes this. When death is pushed out of our thinking, it isn't replaced by warmth and peace and happiness. It's replaced by others of death's many faces. We fixate instead on the comparatively trivial symptoms of our deeper problem. We're still anxious, still defensive, still insecure, still angry, and even despairing. It doesn't help us to push it out. Like, you know, Mary had a little limb. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to think about you. Maybe you'll go away. So then he quotes a guy named Walter Wangren who wrote this, If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, that is our fault, not the gospel's. Can I get an amen to that? Okay. If the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, that is our fault, not the gospel's. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten, whereas he can be our necessary ally, an immediate, continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior. So what if the best way to live is by facing honestly and regularly our inevitable and quickly approaching 
death. So if we face death honestly and the judgment that follows, we can't help but feel our need for a deliverer. Turn to Hebrews 2. In, in your Bibles. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1002. I love this passage. When we face our death honestly in the judgment that follows, we can't help but feel our need for a deliverer. So Hebrews 2.14 says we've got one. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. He became human. He took on flesh and blood, the incarnation. Why did he do that? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And why? So that he could deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life long slavery. So we face, de- face, face death honestly, and we are sobered, and we're reminded of our need for a deliverer, and then we are led to ponder, consider Jesus, the one who has set us free from this slavery. We don't have to fear death anymore. He died to destroy the chains of death, to destroy the work of the devil. So the refrain here is not the end of the song of Scripture. In Genesis 5, that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, is not the end of the song of Scripture. So yes, and he died must be sung. But there's another verse. And it starts with, and Jesus died. He died... So that though we surely will die physically, we have been made alive together with Christ. If we're trusting Jesus, we've been made alive together with Christ. He's canceled our sin. Death's sting has been removed. Jesus conquered the grave, and we've been raised with Christ. So though we will surely die, we will surely not die. And we've sung of some of these things already. Don't you love it when Jesus says to Martha at the death of Lazarus, Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? All right, yeah, you can answer that. That's good. So the song with this refrain, it's all about Yeah, Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, refrain. But the song, the whole song, is all about the death of death in the death of Christ. Okay, for all who trust in Jesus, you will surely live. Because God so loved this world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So the death of Jesus stomped on the head 
of the liar, the serpent, and turned his lie on its head. What was his lie? You will surely not die. You won't surely die. And so Jesus said, shut up. And then he said, you will not surely die now because I'm going to do it in your place. So you will surely live. Death does not get the last word. Jesus does. So even though you die, yet shall you surely live. And when Jesus returns and makes all things new, death will be no more. It's what Revelation 21 and 22 make it clear, teach us. So when we face our death, we're sobered, we see our need, but we love that we get to face, we get to see our our Savior's face. So his death is so precious to us when we look our death full in the face, and it gives us, Jesus' death gives us life and it gives us hope. So even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this life, even, even when death comes knocking at our door, and it's coming, it is coming for all of us. We've got a living hope that can't be killed by death. So we need to get our hope in the right place on solid, eternal footing. I love what Jonathan Edwards wrote about death and our hopes. He said this, If we spend our lives in the pursuit of a temporal happiness as riches or sensual pleasures, credit and esteem from men, delight in our children and the prospect of seeing them well brought up and well settled, etc. All these things will be of little significancy to us. Death will blow up all our hopes and will put an end to these enjoyments. The places that have known us will know us no more and the eye that has seen us shall see us no more. We must be taken away forever from all these things, and it is uncertain when. It may be soon after we are put into the possession of them, and then where will be all our worldly employments and enjoyments when we are laid in the silent grave? So he's saying all of that to make sure that we don't set our hope on something that can be pulled away from us so easily. He wants our feet, God wants our feet to be on the solid rock and have this living hope that can't be blown up by death. So Peter, who talks about that living hope, also says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Nobody can take that from you. And then you're going to have stability for the ups and downs, the losses and, and the pains and aches of this life. So this passage before us, Genesis 5, so early in the story is playing clearly the, the sad, the dissonant song of the fall, fall from blessing to curse, from life to death, and the refrain is sung by generation after generation. But there's one ancestor whose life is dissonant to the dissonance or dissonant with the dissonance. Okay, so his, his end on this earth is sung in a surprising major key in the midst of a tragic minor key chapter. So death seems like this inescapable destiny, but 
even as early as Genesis 5, the path of life is spotlighted in the midst of the darkness of death with Enoch. Okay, so point number three, walking by faith. Let's look at verses 21 to 24. So we're back in Genesis 5 on page 4. Verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. He walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, if you put chapter 5, these verses in particular, next to chapter 4, you learn that Cain's line led to a killer in the seventh generation. Lamech is the seventh generation. The offspring of the serpent, that line, is proud and brutal and violent. But Seth's line, the offspring of the woman, the seventh generation leads to one who doesn't die. It's very telling contrast. It's Enoch. And thankfully, we've got some inspired commentary on the life of Enoch. That makes it easy on the preacher, right? So can you turn back to Hebrews? Not chapter 2 this time, but this time in chapter 11. Some really helpful interpretive truth here about the life of Enoch. Hebrews chapter 11, look at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And Enoch is one of those who received his commendation by faith. And we read of it in verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, just like Elijah, right? The only two. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended. That's that receive your commendation by faith in verse 1. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How do you please God? Look at verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So by faith, death did not get the last word with Enoch. His faith meant the interruption of the refrain. And he died, and he died, and he died. He walked with God, and he never died. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that those who walk with God will be taken like he was. Only Elijah is the only other one that shares that end. But it's a pointer to the fact that those who trust in the Lord will never die. Okay, so the rest of Adam's sons, look back at Genesis 5, and there's this interesting pattern. The rest of Adam's sons just lived and died. Look at it. The verb is repeated, not just any died, but also lived. So Seth lived so many years and he died. Enosh lived and he died. 
Kenan lived and he died. Mahalalel lived and he died. But with Enoch, it doesn't say that. It says Enoch walked with God. And so he didn't just live, he walked with God. To him, walking with God was life. He didn't die, God took him. So this powerful contrast, these other sons just lived and they died. Enoch walked with God and he didn't die. It's supposed to be a contrast, a powerful one. And it points forward to gospel truth that if we walk with God by faith in Jesus, you will never die eternally. So we'll see the same description of Noah actually next week. Flip just a page or let's see, is it on the same page? Genesis 6-9. Yeah, it's just on the opposing page. This is the same description of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So he walked with God, and what happened to him? He wasn't condemned with the rest of humanity. He was rescued from death at the flood in the ark. Okay? So Hebrews 11, inspired commentary on Enoch And then we have Hebrews 12 that says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, witnesses like Enoch, let us also lay aside the weights and sins and run, walk, we could say for this morning, um, with endurance, the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking to Jesus. So here's the deal. Enoch and Noah are cheering us on this morning. They're witnesses, great cloud of witnesses. They're saying, don't just live, Bethel. Walk with God. Don't just live and die. Walk with God. That's what it means to really live and to have eternal life. So Enoch is like this ray of light breaking through the darkness and and lighting the path forward for us. The world is in darkness. It's under the curse of death. But there's this path of light leading straight on into eternal life. Isn't that how you want to live? Isn't that where you want to live on that path? Don't you want to walk with God? That's the only way you break this cycle of living and dying that's the inheritance of every man, every woman from Father Adam. So this is a a call and encouragement to follow in the footsteps of Enoch, walking with God. God. This walking theme is all through the Bible. Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, Christians in Colossae and here in Wilmington as well, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How'd you receive him? By grace, through faith. It's a total gift. Empty hands. I'm in need. Jesus is the only one that can save me and help me. Thank you. I'm with him. That's how we live every day. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk with Him. Let's walk with God. Or Micah 6.8, probably know that verse maybe. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, do justice, to love kindness, mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is life. Like that is the way to live. Communion with God, companionship with God. We don't often live that way. Don't you want to live that way more often, like consciously? Yes, like thank you, Enoch. I want to follow in your footsteps. So 
I don't even know who this guy is, but I ran across this quote, a guy named Marcus Dodds. He was commenting on this Enoch thing and walking with God, and it's really helpful description of what it means to walk with God. So this could be helpful as we know what we're aiming for when we want to walk with God like this. Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company. Do you like God's company? You know, if you're holding on to some sin, you, you don't tend to want to be alone with God quietly in prayer because unless you're willing to go like this, it's going to be in between. So Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company because he was going in the same direction as God. <laughs> I love it's like profound simplicity of this. Like, don't you want to go in the same direction as God? <laughs> like, I, I think he can set the walking agenda. Like, I think he knows where he's going. We should go with him. So Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God when he is in all our thoughts, as when any person or plan or idea has become important to us. No matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, woman, everything has a connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. When he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has resumed his place at God's side and walks again with him. I mean, God pulls us out of the ditch, thankfully. Walks again with him as you instinctively avoid subjects which you know will jar upon the feelings of your friend as you naturally endeavor to suit yourself to your company, so when the consciousness of God's presence begins to have some weight with you, you are found instinctively endeavoring to please him, repressing the thoughts you know he disapproves and endeavoring to educate such dispositions as reflect his own nature. Okay, we don't typically talk like that, but you get the idea. This is really helpful. It changes us to walk with God. We, we want to please him. Oh, that sounds like Hebrews 11. <laughs> so don't you want to live this way? Let's follow in Enoch's footsteps, walking with God through this broken, cursed world. It's the only way to live. This is how to really live. It's also the only way to love. Remember that quote by Walter Wangren, if the gospel seems irrelevant to our daily lives, that's our fault, not the gospel's. For if death is not a daily reality, then Christ's triumph over death is neither daily nor real. Jesus is reduced to something like a long-term insurance policy, filed and forgotten, whereas he can be our necessary ally and immediate, continuing friend, the holy destroyer of death and the devil, my own beautiful Savior. So we all would do well to remember death on a daily basis, not as an end in itself, but by doing so, Jesus will become more and more precious to us on a daily basis. So last point, bringing out the Latin on you, memento mori, memento Christi. Okay, so there's this ancient Christian tradition that's actually making a bit of a comeback in some circles, which is why I heard of it because I don't know Latin. I'm not going to pretend I do. Memento mori means remember death. And you can guess what memento Christi means, right? 
So think about your life. Think about your thought life. How often do you think about your own death? When was the last time you had a conversation about death with another person? And like a personal conversation about the reality of death, not an arm's length discussion about current events tragedy, although that's important too. See, I think this is almost like a spiritual discipline that we should cultivate to remember death. Spiritual discipline like reading the Bible and prayer. Because in remembering death, we're also going to remember Jesus. And in doing so, it's going to teach us to number our days and live a wise and loving life walking with our Savior, the only one who can save us from death. So I want to close by considering this spiritual discipline of remembering death and remembering Christ. And I want to lay it beside, kind of lay it over our values at Bethel, which are gospel, community, and mission. So does death have anything to do with what's most important to us here? Gospel, community, and mission. Does Christ have, I mean, that's hopefully a big, you know, hearty yes. But I think this could be helpful. So remember death, remember Christ, gospel. It's essential to us. It's, It's absolutely the first thing, the last thing, and everything in between. There's fear, in, there's fear of death in here, okay? And I'm actually meaning me. There's fear of death in me. So what am I going to do about that? Well, I can remember the gospel. Is there any fear of death in you? Do you ever bump into that? Well, there's an answer to that in Jesus. Because do you remember that passage in Hebrews 2? He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to set you free from lifelong slavery to death. He came to make you Say crazy things like the Apostle Paul. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How are you going to mess with a guy like that? What are you going to do? Kill me? That's more Jesus. Gain. He's utterly free. Don't you want to live free like that? See, what really gets, like, really trips us up is our fear of death trickles back into the now and we start hedging our bets and we start saving our lives and our comfort and we get protective and we stop loving and risking. But if to us to live is Christ and to die is gain, do you see how that freedom trickles back and we start loving in risky ways? We don't have to save our lives because Jesus already did that. So we're set free to love. So there's fear of death in here. And if you're struggling with fear of death, I'd be happy to talk to you. I I went through a few years of angst-level fear of death. And I'm really thankful for Hebrews 2 and other truths like it. So there's fear of death in here, but the gospel speaks a really powerful, good word to our fear of death because Jesus died to set us free from the fear of death. So there's fear of death in here, but there is freedom from fear of death in Christ. Memento mori, memento Christi. Now let's consider it in relation to community. There's fear of death among us. 
So it's not just in here, it's out there with my brothers and sisters. So think about it this way. Have you ever noticed how people unite around a shared common enemy or threat or struggle or problem? We see it in the political realm, in droves in our world today, right? We see it. Why do people go to AA? Because the, the enemy of alcohol and, and addiction. It's why all kinds of support groups happen. People are gathered together because they've got the same enemy they're trying to fight the same threat, the same struggle, the same problem. It's why tired young moms get together. <laughs> okay, you guys are awake. Um, like, being a mom of little kids is really hard. So your kids aren't the enemy, necessarily, um, but they can be a threat to your sanity and your sleep. So get together people who have kids with disabilities, people who have cancer, like all of these threats, and it draws people together. Well, what about death? We all share a common enemy. What about the fear of death support group? Like, that's the church. That's your community group. So, hi, I'm Chris, and I'm going to die, and it scares me. You're supposed to say, hi, Chris. Okay. <laughs> All right, we can work on this. So we need each other. Others need us. Okay, because we're going to ebb and flow with our boldness and courage and fearlessness and struggle and all of that. But we actually, in the church, have the answer to death. So do you also notice the head side of that whole dynamic? Have you ever noticed how people unite around a shared common solution or life enhancer or lifesaver? So it can be, you know, pedant, uh, mundane things like we, get, we become groupies for a certain budgeting plan or a diet plan or a health regimen or yoga groups or whatever. Like, oh, it changed my life, you know? Like, okay, great. That's good. But what about the death killer? How about that for a solution that we can all gather around? We gather around Jesus our hero and our deliverer and our champion. So this is the church he died and rose again to set free, to make us fearless and victorious. Like, that's why we gather together. That's why we're here on Sunday, by the way, Easter Sunday every week, because he's alive. And then we sung that song, which is, I'm so glad we sung that song, because he lives. So there is fear of death among us. But there's also among us courage and strength. Okay, there's strength in numbers, in a community with other brothers and sisters who remember death and remember Jesus. And we can help each other take courage and keep walking with God, even through the valley of the shadow of death. So we need to work at that, cultivate that kind of dynamic here. And then finally, mission. So there's fear of death in here. There's fear of death in here. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of fear of death out there. There's a lot of fear of death. The people you call your family that don't know Jesus yet, that you work with, you rub shoulders with, that are your neighbors. Death's going to come knocking for every single one of them. They're afraid. And hardly anybody is willing to talk about it. 
why so many people are chasing so many things with reckless abandon, trying to be immortal, you know? Whether it's the pathetic attempts of diet plans and pills and cosmetic surgery and on and on and on. It's also why people are self-medicating all around us so they don't have to hear the minor key haunting music of the fall. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. They want to drown it out. They can't. They're scared. And we have, we have the answer. We have the way of life, the means to life. So let's, brothers and sisters, remember death. And let us remember Christ so that we can help others do the same and find life and peace in Christ, walking with God. So I love that we sung, Because He Lives. We're going to close with um, Christ is Risen. But as the musicians come on up and we close in prayer, I was thinking as we sung, Because He Lives, and we sung these words, let my song join the one that never ends. Let my song join the song that never ends. So we're singing already. We've already been made alive together with Christ. We're going to be singing that song forever. But what hit me is this, I want, a song to sing the, I want to sing the song that never ends. But what hit me is the refrain in Genesis 5, and he died. Guess what? That refrain is going to die out one day. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that great? There is a song that never ends, and there's a refrain that's sobering, but guess what? It's going to die out, and the only refrain left will be, because he lives, we're alive forevermore. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we shook our fist in your face and doubted your goodness and truth, though we bought the lies of the liar, you didn't let the story end at you will surely die. You sent your son in your love and mercy and grace to die in our place to take hell for us so that we could surely live. And we thank you, thank you, thank you that you've made us alive together with Christ. We have a living hope. And whoever believes in you will not perish but has eternal life. Help us to remember it and help us to share it. In Jesus' name, amen.